Check one, two, one, two. You guys doing all right? Yeah, excellent. Mike, great job reading God's word to us. It's a great, oper- or great opportunity to serve the church, and we're so thankful for you, brother. And uh, let's, let's pray briefly but again before we, we dive into this morning's sermon from Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15 through 29. Lord God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you have said by your word, that we may take it, that we may know it, and that we may live by it. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. I'm glad you guys are waking up and getting warmed up <laughs> this morning. It's good to see you. Hey, just by way of something fun to highlight from this past week, you know, every week's usually a pretty good week, and every day we get in the Lord is a great day, right? Did you guys know that Gene Light celebrated his birthday this past week? Uh-huh. Yes. If you've been here for some time, you have realized that Gene may be one of my favorite people to pick on. <laughs> and he does a good job of picking on me, too. <laughs> so, Gene, brother, we're just so gl- grateful for you. Happy birthday. We hope that it was a great one. Joan, we hope that he, he, you were able to tolerate him for the entire day of his birth. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you, brother, for, for being here. We love you in the Lord, and we're so thankful for your life. <laughs> Guys, as we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning, I've, I've got a question for you that I want you to consider. Okay. Have you ever been at the center of a really disturbing lie? Yeah, has that ever been something that you have faced? You know, New Englanders can be stone cold and not bothered by things. But there is a reality that is a common proverb But I think we mix it up sometimes. You may have heard this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie, (laughs) okay? Sticks and stones do indeed break your bones, and words, if we're all honest, do at times hurt us. Now, some of you may not know this. Some of you may be familiar with this, but when I became pastor of this church, it had been through a number of really tough years. It had been... Uh, what looked like a seemingly thriving community with people present and things happening. But it was more truly a, a place of nostalgic worshipers than Christ followers. And when I say nostalgic, what I mean by this is C.S. Lewis, he says that nostalgia is the special emotion of longing, and it always is bittersweet. When we feel nostalgia, we experience a feeling of something lost, and yet at the same time, it's a beautiful perception of what has been lost, and so we long for it. Nostalgia is a fleeting and yet painful reality that we face, and there's also this kind of satisfying part to it. So I'll just give you an example. Think of like a really special place from your childhood, right? A really special place. I can remember <laughs> one time I was working at a summer camp, and they said, what do you, how would you describe your hometown? And I said, well, Connecticut's like green. There's lots of green. There's lots of hills, and it's beautiful. And everybody was kind of like, oh, okay, that's what you have to say about Connecticut. All we know is Hartford, right? That is usually what people say. You're from Connecticut. Oh, how close to Hartford are you, right? Because that's the only city that they know. Now, praise the Lord, Connecticut is not represented by all of Hartford. Amen? Amen. We do have rolling hills and green pastures around here. Trust me, I live in Lebanon. It is that reality every day. Um, now, when we think of that, those kind of places that we love, 
what we can do is we can idolize it and say, it was amazing, there was nothing ever wrong with it. But every one of us probably remembers growing up in our town, having the feeling of, I can't wait to get out of this place, right? And then all of a sudden, when you miss home, you go, it was so perfect. What did I do? I missed it, right? Now, there are genuine good realities, but there are also times where we're nostalgic about things that have happened. Now, back to my story about this church, right? Hebrew Church of Hope, founded in 1716, uh, before I had become pastor. From 1992 all the way to the year 2004, there were 12 different pastors over 12 different years here at the church. It was a time of tumult, a time of real chaos in the life of this church, and there were lots of things that went really poorly. In 2004, the Lord provided a a wonderful pastor who was committed to God's word uh, to this church body, and I'm so thankful for that pastor. He personally invested in me. I'm so thankful for his ministry that was here, and that brother had a tall task that was in front of him. He had to take a church that was full of people who idolized the glory days and worshiped things that were not even Christian or biblical and help them to see the message of the gospel and how it transforms us and how the church is meant to be full of worshipers of Christ. That brother served here from 2004 to 2016. In 2010, the church had been through so much hardship when, it, when he came in, in 2004, there were 125 people. In 2010, there were five people. They actually had a meeting where they prayerfully were considering closing the doors and selling this building to another gospel-preaching church because they thought that their days were done. These were hard days. He had done some hard things, and he had gained a reputation in town where the church and him were not known for good gospel things, They were known for taking away people's comforts, removing what they had long loved and appreciated about a particular place and a location. He did good work. It was hard work. And I really thank God that he was the kind of man that was helping lead them to understanding the Bible and how to worship as followers of Jesus. And in 2016, the church had 12 members, and he just could, the church could no longer support him on, his, on a salary. So they were actually raising funds through the sale, tag sale that they were doing through the Red Barn, and they were using whatever they earned every week to pay their pastor. That's the kind of situation that Hebron Church of Hope was in. Well, lies had circulated in town about this man's intentions and what he had done and how he had gone about things, and, and people even threatened uh, his life in letters. It was a really difficult moment for this church. And in 2018, I, when I became pastor, I saw the beginning of a new moment and chapter for Hebrew and Church of Hope. And much of, of that has been the Lord's kindness and his provision uh, since 2018. Through COVID season, though, I started to see some of the lies that were being circulated about Hebrew and Church of Hope come back to the surface. And even lies that were told about me, I was becoming now the center of lies that were being spread in the community, hearing things like, uh, you know, the, the barn had closed because there was a new young pastor in the church who wanted just to change everything and burn the building down. That was said, right? It, here's one that was recent that I thought was actually pretty interesting. 
because I didn't know anything about it, but there was a lie circulating that somehow the church property was for sale and uh, that we were going to sell the building and give away the proceeds. And I was like, wow, that's, that's news to me. And, and the brother who had heard this said, he, he was there when somebody said that, and he said, I don't know anything about that, and I'm a member of the church. <laughs> right? uh, there are times where people say things like, you know, there's young leadership here who only cares about young people, Th- that there was a, a lie that spread, like there was a hostile takeover of leadership here, and that I only cared about my friends, and I would give them any opportunity to do whatever they wanted in the worship services. <laughs> and I, I can chuckle now, but looking at those moments, they were hard things that really did indeed affect me personally and what I felt about the church and how I wanted to guard and protect the reputation of our particular church. I'm sure you've been in the center of a lie that's been told before. So how can we respond and live in these times where chaos is going on with wisdom and with godliness? That's really what the author of Ecclesiastes has been trying to get to as he's been writing this book to us. And so my argument for this morning, what I want to teach us from Ecclesiastes 7, is that we can live wisely by not being overly righteous or overly wicked, but by trusting the sovereign God, knowing that our time will end. How do we live in these moments? We do so by pursuing wisdom that is not overly righteous or overly wicked, but by trusting the sovereign God, knowing that our time will come to an end. So what I actually want to do is I want to break this passage up into three different parts. We're going to look at three realities. The first is this, is that everyone is sinful. We're looking at Ecclesiastes 7, verses 20 to 22. Everyone is sinful. We're going to start there. Then we're going to go to how wisdom can be found in verses 23 through 29, how wisdom can be found. And then we're going to land the plane on that main point that we can live wisely by not being overly righteous or overly wicked, but by trusting God. So let's look at this first reality, that everyone is sinful. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20 says, There is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. Don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For in your heart you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. Here's the reality we must start with, guys. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is sinful. There is certainly no one righteous, no one who does good and never sins. In Romans chapter 1 through 3, Paul writes to us about how sin is an active rebellion against God. It's something that may not always be super obvious. It actually may come in the form of the suppression of truth. But here's the reality. The Bible communicates about humans that are made by God in this fallen world, we are all sinful. There is not one who is good above the other. There is no one who can stand in the kind of status of goodness that God himself stands in. We are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, and there is not one of us who is perfectly righteous and can never sin. So no one's righteous apart from God. No matter what your race is, no matter what your religious background is, no matter what, if you are a human, the Bible describes humans, this side of heaven, as sinners. We are sinners, and our sin has consequences. 
Uh, the Bible also tells us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death, but eternal life, or the free gift of God is eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So our sin has the consequence of separating us from the holy God. And he gives us life through Jesus. So what we need to recognize is that sin is indeed costly. And that cost of sin separates us from God. And it gives us this reality that now on this side of heaven, none of us can live perfectly. Now, I think this is a really important emphasis for us to, to highlight today because I think it'd be fair to say, you guys tell me if I'm wrong, that most of us want to live in godliness, right? You, you agree with that, right? So we want to live in a way that brings glory to God. Now, can I just ask you a question? Anybody doing that perfectly? I'll say from the front, not me, right? Every morning I get up, I get mad at the cat. My anger is highlighted, and the Lord reminds me that sir is the thorn that is in my flesh, right? That cat, many of you know, you've heard his meow. There's something agonizing about his vocals, okay? He looks cute, but that's all that's cute about him, his looks. Now, the reality is, is that all of us, while we want to pursue godliness, we are not perfect beings. But sometimes we have one of two responses in that, right? The one response that we see highlighted in Ecclesiastes is that what we call escapism, right? So the idea is, okay, I can't live perfectly, so I'm not going to try, okay? What does it matter anyway, right? Okay, does anybody know how Paul would answer this in Romans 6? Our Romans Bible study friends, what did Paul say in Romans 6, 1 through 3? Anybody remember? The first thing he says is Romans 6, 1. Should we continue to sin that grace would abound? By no means, right? So Paul answers this question right off the bat for us in the New Testament, and this is a light that we need to see into the Old Testament. In fact, what Paul quotes in Romans 3 comes exactly from Ecclesiastes seven twenty that there's no one who is righteous, there's no one who's perfect. And so if we are sinful people, the thing not to do is to continue in sin with the idea of, well, I'm just going to keep doing this so that grace can come my way, right? It doesn't matter how I live. Friends, hear this very clearly. It matters how you live. Your actions are actually reasonable and they carry real consequences, okay? So we, we can't get into this route of thinking, all right, hey, you know what? The Whatever I do, it's all just not going to work out perfectly, so therefore I'm just going to give up. That is a, a danger to you spiritually. <clears throat> you need to run from that. You need to run to the Lord in light of that. Rather than saying, I'm just going to give up because I keep being sinful, what we need to do is continue to come to the Lord in repentance and say, God, I am a sinner. I need you. Right? Now, if we were to look at like the person of David, right? David is a wonderful example to us in the Psalms of somebody who continues to sin, and he comes back to the Lord, and he says, Lord, right, Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Sin is costly, but we need to confront our sinfulness. And one of the things that I think could be helpful to us is also the picture of the New Testament that we see in the Pharisees and Jesus' Gospels. The Pharisees were known for what? They were known for saying all the right things, doing all the right things, thinking because of their background that they were all right with God, 
but really their hearts were wicked and set against him. So our sin may not be brutally obvious, like things that we may identify in the culture, right? Things like LGBTQ, we might say, oh, well, that's a glaring sin. Homosexuality is a glaring sin. Adultery is a glaring sin. Guys, we need to come to grips with the reality that there's also what we would mask as religious sin, where we look good and we do the right things, but our hearts are decaying, and we need to hear the words of Jesus in his rebuke to people like that, where he says, oh, you whitewashed tombs, right? That's the thing about a graveyard. You ever notice this? You go to a graveyard, they cut the grass nice, they plant flowers, everything looks good, but you know what it is? It's a place where there's a bunch of dead bodies. It's not a beautiful picture. It's a picture of a sad reality. It's that we come to an end. Everyone is sinful, but we need to confront our sin with the reality of that is that we need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. We need salvation, and Jesus comes in our place so that we can be made right with God. The good news of the gospel is, friends, is that even what we hear in verse 21, don't pay attention to everything people say to you, Jesus took our place and he was mocked, right? Isaiah 53 says he was cursed, he was mocked, he was beaten for our afflictions. He's taken our place for our wrongdoing that we might have life with God. What we need is a savior. We need to trust in what Jesus has done to rescue us from sin. We're all sinners, but there's good news. There's a savior If we repent and we believe in what he has done on the cross to rescue us from sin, we can have eternal life with God. And that might be a reality you've heard. It may be a reality that you stand in. But here, you need it again. We don't move on from the gospel. We need the gospel. We need to grow in Christ. And growing in Christ means recognizing our sinfulness, coming to the Lord in humility, and saying, God, I need you. So we learn that everyone's a sinner The second thing we learn in Ecclesiastes 7 is that wisdom can be found, right? Now, this escapism message, right? The idea of like, okay, what does it all matter in the end anyway? It's a real question that people weigh through as they read the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, as I was sitting here and Mike read Ecclesiastes this morning, there was one particular picture of a childhood character that came to my mind. Any of you guys watch Winnie the Pooh? (laughs) Right? I loved Winnie the Pooh as a grown up. And my favorite character was Tigger, right? Because he always was full of energy and he was jumping around and he was having the time of his life. And I always thought it'd be kind of cool to have like a spring-loaded tail that would just like hop me from location to location. Uh, who is the, the sad figure in Winnie the Pooh? Eeyore, right? I, I hear like Ecclesiastes being read and I'm going, man, people could rename this the Book of Eeyore, <laughs> right? Where it's like... All of this is going on, and it's like, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What is the good news in this, right? Guys, that is not the tone the preacher's using here in Ecclesiastes 7. He's saying, all of this is chaotic. You're going to die. There's going to be an end. But what he's landing on is that there is indeed wisdom. There is indeed a way for us to live, but it comes with a reality. We're not infinite. We're not all-knowing. We are not God. But 
There's good news in this. He is. While we are not, He is. And so, worshiping God in wisdom means recognizing our finite reality while embracing His infinite, all-knowing power. Look at verse 23. I have tested all this by wisdom. I resolved I will be wise, but it was beyond me. What exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? The preacher is coming to this conclusion. He's saying, hey, I have done everything I can. And if you have not found out that the preacher has discovered and gone on this journey, if you've been with us through Ecclesiastes, it has been clear. He's he's pursued wisdom. He's pursued wealth. He's pursued relationships. He's pursued different materials. And he says all of them ultimately fall short of what they promise, right? They promise more than what they can deliver. And so he says, I've done all of this. I've resolved to live in a way that's wise, but it's beyond me. He's not saying I am defeated and undone. What he is saying is there's something about me that's limited. There's something about me that's limited. But he goes on in verse 25 and 26, he says, I turn my thoughts to know, explore, and examine wisdom and an explanation for things and to know that wickedness is stupidity and folly is madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman who is a trap, her heart a net, and her hands chains. The one who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner will be captured by her. So he, he does come to see what wisdom brings about. Wisdom shows us two realities. Wickedness is stupid, and folly is madness. He's saying these are absolutely certain. He can understand these realities. And so, guys, what he's gripping with is his limitations, but also recognizing that there are real things that he can say are certain that he can experience. Guys, that's true for us. We are not complete in our our wisdom, but there are certain things that we do indeed know, right? Now, we may overlook some of these things at time. Like, I'll give you one, okay? You guys can know this today, right? When you go home after leaving church, you're going to get into a vehicle. You're going to turn that vehicle on, whether you've got a push button or a key, right? Or <laughs> I don't think anybody's got one of those crank engines anymore here, but you never know. You never know, right? <laughs> you're going to go home. You're going to get out into the parking lot, you're going to turn on your car, and you can see that there is absolutely reality that when you press the gas, your car goes forward. Now, most of us, unless you've been neg- like neglectful in your, your car maintenance, okay, y- your car goes forward. That is a reality. That is certain. You hit the brakes, it stops. That is true. Right? You can see that this is indeed a reality for us. <clears throat> but what you long for in knowing the complete plan of God, knowing perfectly his will, is not capable, that's not something that you're capable of. It's not something that I'm capable of. I'm not able to completely, perfectly know every detail of God's plan and will. Paul calls it a mystery, the mystery of God's will. So while he recognizes that there is truth, I also just want to clarify for a moment verse 26. I don't know if anybody read that and said, oh, 
woman's a, a death trap, right? Rachel jokingly like turns aside to me and she, she goes, my hands are like nets, <laughs> right? <laughs> and she's like grabbing onto me like, oh boy, you're, you're in trouble, buddy, <laughs> right? Now, wisdom, the wisdom literature books of the Bible describe a, a woman who is folly. Okay, if you look through the book of Proverbs, folly is described as a woman who relentlessly pursues uh, people who are easily prone to sin. Okay? So what the author is doing here is he's using the picture that is of folly as an illustration for us. He's not saying all women are death traps. Okay? He's not saying that. Ladies, we do not believe that. You are all death traps. Okay? <laughs> that is not what we're preaching. Okay? But what we do want to say is that the Bible uses this illustration of a woman who relentlessly pursues uh, someone to lead them away from the truth of God. So, pursuing wisdom at times, or pursuing madness and folly, is stupidity. That's what the preacher has con- concluded, and he's re-highlighting this again through this illustration, saying, hey, when we pursue what's wicked, when we pursue what is uh, folly, it's like pursuing a woman who is just set on destroying you. Okay. So, we can know that we're limited, that wisdom can be gained, But ultimately, all of this is under the umbrella of this truth that God has made wisdom and he is good. God has made wisdom and he is good. Look at verse 27. Look, says the teacher, I've discovered this by adding one thing to another to find out the explanation, which my soul continually searches for but does not find. I found one person in a thousand, but none of those was a woman. Only see this, I've discovered that God made people upright, but they pursued many schemes. So the reality that he comes to is there's limitation, right? He has turned over every rock. He's gone over one after another, all the way up to the thousands, and he has found one truth, one reality. What is that one truth, that one reality? God made people upright, but they were taken over by many schemes, God made people. He made us in his image, equal in worth, dignity, and value, with distinctions, male and female, in different capacities and functions for his created order. This is a good gift. He has made it in a way that is very good. But the reality is this, is that all people under the curse, those who have fallen and rebelled against the Lord, we are sinful at best. And so, He is saying here, God's made wisdom, and it is good. But it belongs ultimately in what he has given and the gift that he is to us. So, so far we've learned everyone's sinful, that wisdom can be found. Ultimately, wisdom's in God. How are we to live in a world where we know we're dying, and a world where we know that there's injustice, a world full of chaos. How do we do this? Look at chapter 7, verse 15. In my futile life, I have seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. Don't be excessively righteous, and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked, and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp the one and do 
not let the other slip from your hand. For the one who fears God will end up with both of them. Wisdom makes the wise person stronger than ten rulers of a city. We can live in wisdom, not overly righteous or overly wicked, but by trusting in the sovereign God. Trusting in God. Now, we, we understand life's full of chaos. As I look out into the room this morning and I look at you people, I know many of your stories and some of the chaos of life that you have experienced. We all can recognize this reality. Life is chaotic. But as the preacher gives his principle here, in light of our finiteness, or our light of our limitation, his main principle sounds a bit weird to us. And he says, don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked. I, there was once a, a, a Nine Marks journal that was called, uh, be a church member, do ordinary things. And what came to my mind as I was reading this, this, this verse, verse 16 from the preacher, don't be overly righteous, don't be overly wicked. This is the phrase that came to my mind. Don't be weird, do normal godly things. <laughs> don't be weird, do normal godly things, right? And I was like, man, I don't know how to preach that. <laughs> that doesn't sound like encouraging. That doesn't sound like something that, that people on a Sunday morning would like hold on to and be like, I remember that from the sermon. But that's really where we need to land on not being weird, but pursuing the Lord in faithfulness. What does faithfulness look like? It's a balance. Because here's the reality. As humans, we like to live in extremes, right? We've got a family member that once said, as we live in extremes, we either go this way or that way, right? Now, oftentimes, we think of that in the walk of Christ. We can say we have one of two tendencies, legalism or liberalism, right? Where we make all sorts of rules or we live by freedom. But what we need is a balance. We need to pursue the Lord with faithfulness, recognizing our limitations. So as the preacher says, don't be overly righteous or overly wicked, I just want to help us to understand what he's saying here. While we live in these extremes, we need balance. So I'm not saying this. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pursue righteousness. In fact, if you actually read the rest of the passages here, what he says is that it's good to grasp onto one and not let go of the other. He's saying that it's good for us to pursue righteousness, but we need to understand that as we pursue righteousness, that we are not perfectly righteous. Only Christ is perfectly righteous. So there's this tendency, right? So I want to talk about sanctification, justification, right? The, the terms that are being used here, righteous and wicked, these are legal terms. The idea of being declared righteous in right standing with God. We believe what the Bible teaches is that our right standing with God, we are justified by faith alone. We do not earn our standing with God. There's nothing we can do outside of trusting in Christ. Jesus has made the way for us to be righteous with God. When we believe in him, we have a perfect righteousness that is his, that is credited to us. Okay? So while we're all sinners and fall short of God's glory, when we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus, we enter into a relationship with God by faith in which now our right standing is Jesus' right standing applied to us forever and ever. Amen. That's good news. 
and yet we're still being sanctified. Right? We have right standing, and we are wrestling with flesh the rest of our lives before we go home to be with the Lord, trying to grow being more like Jesus. How do we do that? We, well, two things. We have to pursue righteousness and kill sin. Pursue righteousness, kill sin. But all of us can understand that there's this reality where we're working too hard for our righteousness. Have you ever tried to, like, just by your own strength, notice how I'm saying this, by your own strength, earn better standing with God? It's like, man, if I do these things, maybe if I pray, maybe if I commit myself to finishing a Bible reading plan this year. These are all good things, right? But here's the wrong emphasis. If I do this, God will love me. That's not what the scripture proclaims to us. <laughs> the scripture tells us, even if we did this, God loved us. Why? Because he decided to love us. Because it's part of his nature. He has made us. He has made us so that we would know him and be known by him. He loves us not because of ourselves, not because of any of our actions. He loves us because that is who he is. He is love. And I don't mean that like a hippie. He is love in every perfect sense. Unconditional love extended to us. Fatherly love extended to us. Not by our action, not by our merit, by his character and his goodness. God is love. So we're tempted at times, right? To go, man, if I do these things, if, if I pursue these things, if I try to be more holy... Right? The scripture tells me I need to be holy. Here's the thing, though. Growing in holiness isn't merely about our actions. It's about our action and our dependence. You've you got to have both of them working together. Our action and our dependence on God. I'm not sitting here saying you shouldn't do anything. Right? That's escapism. I'm saying pursue the Lord and depend on him. Trust that he is going to build you up in his image, in his time, through your circumstances, as he has them, for your good and his glory. Trust the Lord, not yourself. And at the same time, while we're pursuing holiness and we can be tempted to work and earn our way, the other side of that is we can be tempted to be like, Jesus has done it, I'm all set. The perfect New England saying, isn't it? I'm all set. Guys, yes, Jesus has accomplished your salvation. He has made you sanctified, and he is sanctifying you until you return. You cannot escape the clear commands of the New Testament, and particularly how they relate to other Christians. The Bible calls us as followers of Jesus to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think all of us would very easily say we need to grow in that. But I think we'd also say we need to grow in loving others as we love ourselves. Think of the New Testament commands of the one another's. Love one another. Serve one another. Be patient with one another. Guard one another. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. There are very clear commands that God gives us in his word. They're not, they're not suggestions. They are, do this. The Great Commission is not a suggestion. It's a call to the church 
the church of God, to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Right? That was not merely a suggestion of, hey, maybe you should do this. Jesus was saying, go, do this, reach people, share the good news, embrace the truth, deny your sin, live for my glory. So it's not all one end, and it's not all the other. It's something that's a mix of both of them. <clears throat> now, we're each going to have a tendency to lean one way or the other. That's a reality. But what we need is that constant reminder from other brothers and sisters, pursue the Lord. How can we live wisely? We live pursuing righteousness, denying wickedness, ultimately trusting that God is sovereign, that he will work through us with this reality. We are not infinite. I was thinking last night, I saw some really sad news on Facebook. Um, one of my cousins, uh, one of her, her cousins, a distant family, uh, her mother passed away. And she was young. And as she was facing this, she lost her dad two years ago. She's a 20-something, and both of her parents are dead. And it was one of those moments where I went, oh. And her temptation would be to respond to the situation that she's got and say, I'm, I've got one life. I just need to live it as best as I can and have as much fun as I can while I'm here. As I was reading through David Gibson's work, Living Life Backwards, he said that death is a really good preacher to us because death shows us that we are limited. And if you've talked to anybody who's been through a tragic circumstance, whether they've lost a loved one or they've been involved in some sort of accident, they have this appreciation of how short life is. There's, there's something that is good behind that. They recognize there's not going to be a forever this side of heaven, right? Without Jesus, there is not forever. And there's been a few people who have given their lives to Christ and written about the grace and gift of God in the experiences and pain that they've been through and how that has taught them to live knowing this reality that it's not, hey, just do whatever you want to do. It's, I don't have forever. I'm here. The Lord has given me this day. I need to serve him with everything that I have, everything I am for his glory. So friends, in light of the world that we live in, this is not a free ticket to just live however we want to live. This is a call to us to live in a way where we die well and we bring God glory. The message of Ecclesiastes has been just that. That in the middle of chaos, the only way to find meaning is by living for the Lord and following his word. We don't do it perfectly, but we have one who has gone ahead of us perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now as we walk with him in faith, he empowers us by his word and his spirit to live for his purposes. Will we depend on him? Will we pursue righteousness? Will we deny wickedness?
Let's pray and ask the Lord to give us wisdom as we live for him. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we have the opportunity to pause and reflect around the circumstances of our lives, even right now. God, we know that while the world is chaotic, that our home is with you, that you've placed us here. And while we are here, our goal is not merely to survive, but to thrive, to represent your kingdom, to proclaim your good news, and to see real gospel work in the lives of others. I pray that you would develop in us a heart and concern for others, particularly that you would help us to develop a heart and concern for those that don't know Jesus, to share the good news of the hope that's in him alone, to pursue righteousness, God, that you would help us by your spirit to deny ourselves, deny our sin, to pursue you. I thank you that we get to do this together, that you have raised up through believers, a family that is the church, both local and universal, that you have called us with other Christians to live out your commands and your promises, trusting you and depending on you. I pray that you would give us strength to do so. We love you. We thank you. We ask that you would lead us and teach us and shape us. In the light of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.